So this is what God's word says in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Matthew 7, 24 to 27, parable of the house on the rock. You've heard this story before, I would guess. You probably know a song. We aren't going to sing that song. I certainly am not. You are welcome. Basically, two people build two houses, and, and for all intents and purposes, these houses are identical. You can imagine a subdivision of some kind that you have been through many times. Maybe even the one I live in is this way. If you count off almost on regularity, every third house is the same. Because it's, you know, they built, they only had four plans they offered to the homeowners, and it seems like they're, they're on repeat. And you can tell who has the house that's just like yours uh, by what it looks like on the outside. And that's how these two houses are. For all intents and purposes, you walk by these two houses, they look identical. And the difference about these two houses, not what they look like, the difference is what they are built on. And this parable, along with almost all of the parables that Jesus tells us, are what we would call contrast parables. They're intended to. Uh, illuminate for us something which we would obviously agree with, but intended to uh, shed light on a contrast. And, and the contrast is here, again, two different kinds of people, a wise man and a foolish man. So he said, wise person does this, a foolish person does this. A wise person builds his house on a foundation such that when a storm arises, it will stay standing. Whereas a foolish man will build his house on a foundation such that if there were a storm, the house wouldn't be able to withstand it. So, and this is real typical in Israel. There's sandy areas, and there are areas that are prone to flash floods. And if you go out in the areas sort of by the Dead Sea, there are these these wadis that are washouts, and you don't go down there uh, unless you keep your keep looking upstream, because oftentimes these things will fill up even if it's not raining, because it's raining a hundred miles away up in the mountains, and the water will work its way down. And so these floods would come and these rains would come. And so what you would want to do, if you wanted your house to remain, you would want to build it on a surface that if there was a rainstorm or an earthquake or anything, really, but if, in this case, if there's a rainstorm or a flash flood, that it would, it would be affixed and, and, and it would stay standing. And, and so these two houses are built differently for a number of reasons. That It costs more to find rock. It costs more to dig down to rock uh, in order to build your house wherever you want. If you want to build your house in a particular spot, you're going to build it on whatever is there. Whereas if you want to build it on rock, you may not be able to build it where you want. You may have to move it to a more inconvenient location. So there's a number of reasons why a person would do something foolish. The guy didn't wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I want to do something foolish. In the moment, it seemed like wisdom. And so the, the parable is intended to illuminate to us the difference between the wise and the foolish. And when you discover who is wise and foolish. Two houses are built, and they have a long stretch of sunny days, and who looks foolish? Well, the wise person, because he spent all that extra money trying to find a foundation of rock. And the fool looks like the wise person on sunny days, whereas what, what we discover 
what reveals the reality is the storm. The storm is what reveals what actually is. And so this parable, Jesus is saying, there's a wise person that builds a house on rock, a foolish person builds his house without the rock, and when the storm comes, we discover who is wise and who is foolish. So you're asking yourself this question because it seems somewhat straightforward. He's talking about life and he's saying your house is that which is your life, which is being built. You want it built on a rock or on the sand. You read the parable. You're supposed to arrive at this conclusion. Where do you want your house? I want it on a rock. That makes perfect sense. So I don't have to worry about the flood. That's, that's what I want to do. And so what it pushes us to do is we're supposed to come at this, uh, arrive at a couple of questions. And here are the two questions. It challenges, number one, how do we do that? You know, oh, I want to build a house on a rock. I want the storms to not knock my house down. Well, how do I do that? That's a fair question. And then the second question is, is, is why would I do that? What are the benefits of it when the storm comes? What are, what are the benefits of having a house on the rock? So we're going to answer those two questions in the next three hours. Stand strong by hearing and doing. How do you build your house on the rock? How do you build your house on the foundation? Stand strong by hearing and doing. Look at verse 24, Matthew chapter 7. We've already read it. Everyone then who, he gives us the answer at the beginning of the parable, hears these words of mine and does them. He is like the wise man. So the answer is, maybe we could just say we're dismissed, I guess, at this point, right? We figured it out. Well, we'll go get a little more detail. How do I build my house on the rock? The answer is relatively simple. Hear his words and do them. So that's, that's the answer. The, 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 his, his, his parable here is the culmination of a message. He's giving his words out, and now he's ending his message, and he's saying, listen, if you hear my words and you do them, your house will be built on a solid rock. And so they say, well, what are his words, and how do we do them? Well, you may not have noticed, some of you have, Matthew 7.24 is the end of a relatively lengthy message by Jesus that we often call the Sermon on the Mount, and it starts way back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. So this parable of the house being built on the rock is really, in essence, his conclusion. He's wrapping it up. He's getting ready to call the ushers forward and give the invitation. And, and so what is he saying is, I have just given this lengthy message, and, and if you have heard my words and you do them, then you're able to build your house on the rock. So what we have to do in order to properly understand this parable is we have to properly understand the Sermon on the Mount. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through the whole thing today, so we will just sum up. We're going to fly over, but let's do it. Go back to Matthew 5.1. Did you bring your Bible? It's okay if you didn't. You probably have it memorized. We'll just assume if you don't have a Bible out, it's fine. You have it memorized. It's totally cool. So he starts the sermon. There were crowds around him. He sat down. His disciples came to him. He opened his up his mouth, and he taught them this. And I'm going to read Matthew 5, 3 through 12. We often call it the Beatitudes. Here's what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is how he starts his message, Sermon on the Mount. What are blessed people like? Blessed people, people used and moved by God, are those whose hearts are like Christ. They are moved by God to do the things of God because they love God. Look at the character traits that he describes in these, what we call Beatitudes. Those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek. He's describing character traits in the hearts of individuals who are moved by the things of God to do the things of God. A, a number of things we should, we should think about. Poor in spirit, meek, mourners, hunger and thirsty for righteousness, merciful. In our, our culture today, these are all signs of weakness. In our leaders, we like strength. I don't want a poor in spirit leader. I want a, I want a leader who knows what needs to get done and has the resources to get it done, and if people get in his way, he has the strength to knock them out the way. That's what we want in a leader. We want somebody who can storm in and crush opposition and make it right and fix it. And here Jesus describes character traits of the blessed who are poor in spirit, meaning on purpose saying, I don't have anything to offer the Lord. If he doesn't show up, nothing's going to happen. Blessed are those who mourn. That is, they understand the realities of the world around them. It's broken. It's not fixed. It's not right. It needs to be fixed. Blessed are those who are hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does this tell us about that person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? They know that they're not there yet. If, I, if I'm righteous, I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness because I'm, I'm, I've already arrived. This is a person who is seeking the Lord. And, and the closer they draw to the Lord, the more they realize... They've got a long way to go because they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but their eyes are wide open to the reality that they're not righteous. They're not home yet. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not only do they do the right things, they do the right things for the right reasons. So what Jesus is describing here is people who are doing things, but doing things from a character quality of heart, which simply can be described as Christ likeness. What Jesus is really describing here is his own heart. Isn't he? Do you see Jesus in these descriptions? Do you think of a time when Jesus was meek? I can. He was standing before a guy named Pilate. You remember Pilate? Pilate arrogantly says to Jesus, Don't you understand? I have the power to save your life or not. And Jesus, what does Jesus say? Eh, you know, you've got authority. What's been given to you? Knock yourself out. Why didn't Jesus do what you and I would have done? Snap, pile of ash. Oh, I'm sorry, Pilate, you were saying? I mean, that's what we would have done. This is We like leaders who get things done. Big, arrogant Pilate stands in front of the creator of the universe, and he talks trash to Jesus. And Jesus, in meekness, understanding the purposes of God, says, no, I, I know what's going on. You do whatever you got to do. And what you're going to do was given to you by God alone. That's Jesus being meek. Did Jesus mourn? What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Weeping full of anxiety and fear because of his impending doom, the doom that we foisted upon him and which he willingly took upon himself, both the physical and spiritual pain he was about to endure. He certainly was going to take it. But in that moment, mourning that that had to be the reality. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that a mournful statement? It is. 
So Jesus in these Beatitudes, he's describing his own heart. He starts this sermon by saying, let me describe to you what God is like, what I am like. And I want these character qualities to be impressed into your person, into your heart, into your soul, into your mind. So that you as an inner person are like me. And then what you do flows from that inner transformation. What are blessed people like? They're like Jesus. So what does the gospel do? You and I look at the Bible and we look at Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever done this. I do this every now and then. Only when I'm awake, really. And I read the Bible and I discover what Jesus is like. And then I look at my life and I go, oh boy, I'm not like that at all. Anybody ever done that? No, not you guys. You know, I see what Jesus is like. Oh boy, yeah, I didn't see that coming. I, there's no chance that is ever going to happen. Everybody, right? So we read the Bible and then we look at our own heart and we say, holy cow, I can't believe how far off base I am. Right? Now, you would never say this out loud. That's my job. I say it out loud. That way you don't have to. But you say, wow, I don't know. And so what we do is we come to the Lord. We say, Lord, I see what Jesus is like. I see what I like. It is so far apart. I can't imagine the two ever coming together. I need you, God, to change me. What do we call that? Call that repentance. Lord, your way is better than my way. And I don't know what to do about my way. I want your way in my life. And I need you to change me. And then the enemy comes in. Why would God ever hear you? Why would he ever listen to you? Why would God ever change? You don't deserve his time and his effort. And the gospel says, of course I don't. But he died on the cross for me. My sin is paid for. I get to come to God and say, God, I need your grace again today. I need your grace again right now. And I need you to forgive me for what has been. I need you to give me your grace for who I am. And I need you by your spirit to change my heart. That's repentance. Repentance uh, tends to focus a lot less when we, when we really start to see Christ working our heart in this way. We tend to worry. All, I hate to say this. I'm going to offend a bunch of you. Well, maybe all of you. We tend to worry a lot less about what we're doing. And we start thinking about more like what we're like. Sure, we would confess those things we do. But all of a sudden we say, why would I do that? What is going in my, on in my heart that that reality is, uh, is happening? Lord, I don't need you to just forgive me for what I did, although I need that. What I really need is for you to change what I'm like so I don't do those kinds of things anymore. And that's what repentance is doing. It's looking at the character qualities of Christ and saying, I need the cross of Christ to wash me clean. I need the open tomb to give me power to live in his strength. I need the Holy Spirit to transform me into what Jesus is like. Okay, let's look at a couple of do's. We hear... I hear what Jesus was like. Now let's look at a couple of things from the sermon. Now, what are some things we ought to do? Look at Matthew 5, 21. We're, I'm going to give you four or five different examples. Again, we're going to be at the 30,000 foot level, just skimming over the, the Sermon on the Mount. After church, you can go home tonight and, and read the whole thing. You can probably read the whole thing in 10 minutes, 15 minutes maybe. So go ahead and read the whole thing. It'll be really convicting, so you have, keep that in mind. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. Anybody ever heard that before? Ten Commandments, it's one of them. If you don't know that, Exodus 20, look it up. It's in there. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And all the religious people said, I've heard it. Guess what? Never killed anyone. I've got the Awana merit badge of not killing anybody today. They take it away if you murder anybody. I don't know that. I'm just being ridiculous. Here's what Jesus, look what he does. He says, oh, you didn't murder anybody today. I, I guess, congratulations. Look what he does. 
You, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders should be liable to judgment. He doesn't argue that point, but he says this. I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See, he gets off of the religious person checkbox. Oh, I didn't kill anybody. I'm into heaven. He said, no, no, no. Let's look at what's going on in your heart. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody, and in your heart you said, this guy is not well informed this happened we were at uh, Harris Beach and uh, we had an interaction with somebody related to children this happens from time to time when you have the opportunity to engage with other people nobody from our church just somebody camping who decides that they know how to parent now the parents and were like oh it's on okay you really you want you want a piece of this so anyway it was related to me what happened and my response was according to this could potentially judge me this is my response I'm just being honest so that guy's an idiot. As a parent, anybody else? You're like, oh, that's the nicest thing I've said about somebody in the grocery store who's going to tell me how to parent my kid. Uh, that, that's a nice way of saying it. Well, that's what I said. Somebody said something, and they, oh, you're going to give me advice on how my kids ought to be parented. You're an idiot. I didn't say it to them because I'm too chicken. Real passive aggressive, wait till they're way. And that guy's an idiot, you know. What's going on in my heart? Dead serious. What's going on in my heart that I think I could call another person in the image of God an idiot? I'm not confessing. I don't need confession with you. This I've dealt with. I, you know, I've talked to the Lord about it. As the issue is still there. It's going to be there. We're still working on it, right? But what is it about my heart? Because what I want to do is I want to check the box. Well, I didn't shoot the guy in the face. I didn't murder him. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Congratulations, I guess you didn't murder the guy. But what is it about your heart that you think you could call down such a judgmental thing about another person made in the image of God. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, I'm not looking so much at what you did. I mean, he is. But the main issue is his, where is the, where is the Christ likeness in the heart in that moment? See what he's driving at there? What's going on in my soul in that moment? Let's keep going. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But folks pat themselves on the back. Good for me. I haven't committed adultery. I've been faithful to my spouse. Jesus says, but, you know, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So, he, again, what he says, the, the issue is, you say, well, look, I'm, I'm following the rules. I'm following the rules because I've never committed adultery. I've stayed faithful to my spouse, man or woman here. I, I'm, I've, I've remained faithful. And Jesus is saying, well, yeah, you should stay faithful, but the, the greater issue is what's going on in your heart. Maybe another way to get at that with Jesus is, is have, have we remained faithful because our heart is like Christ or have we remained faithful because of a lack of opportunity? And that's the bigger question, isn't it? Is it? Am I the kind of person who would faithful given the opportunity? Now we pray, God, there is no opportunity, but, but am I faithful in heart to the Lord and to those I love or is it merely an outward appearance? Grin and bear it. I'm stuck in this miserable marriage. Jesus goes after our heart, doesn't he? How do we stand strong? We hear that the word of God might transform our hearts, and that's where the doing flows out of them. Just one or two more. Look down, verse 33. You've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. You've heard that before, you shouldn't lie. Anybody heard this before? Lying's wrong. 
it's uh, lying is wrong. It's a little bit of muted response there. Maybe we should have done a message on lying. So we'll just sum it up there. Lying is wrong. He says, you've heard it swear. Uh, you shouldn't lie. But you should perform the Lord what you've sworn. But Jesus says this. How about don't take an oath? Because this is what people would do. They'd plant their field, and they really hope that their field grows a bunch of grain. So what they'll do is they go over to the priest. There's a perfectly appropriate thing to do. They go to the priest and say, listen, I vow on the treasures of the temple, or I vow on the throne of the king, or I vow on the temple, or I vow on the city of Jerusalem, or I vow on my Aunt Susie's grave, whatever they're vowing on, that if my uh, field produces a bumper crop, I'm going to give 10% to the temple or to my uh, Levite in town or something like this. And so they make a vow. And, and, and it was an act of worship to say, God, you provide. I want to make sure I recognize you are the one who have provided. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is saying, how about we don't need to vow to the priest on the throne or on the temple or on the te- treasures of the temple or on Aunt Susie's grave? How about this? That if I say I'm going to do a thing, I do a thing. That's what he says. Look at verse 37. How about you just simply say yes, and, you're, and that means yes, or you say no, and that means no. What is going on in my heart? that I have to vow publicly on, on, the, on the temple or on the treasure or on the priest or on the, on the altar? What is going on in my heart that it takes so much effort to get me to just simply do what I said I was going to do? Jesus says, here's another thing. How about this? How about be like me? And when you say you're going to do a thing, you do a thing. When did Jesus say he was going to go on the cross? I would suggest the earliest moment he mentioned it is Genesis chapter 3 where he said, the serpent is going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush his head. And all those years go by, and he had plenty of opportunity. If he wanted to, he could figure out a way out of it, right? But he's not. He said, yes, I'm going to go. And he went. His yes was yes. And he's saying, what is going on in our heart that we require so much to be faithful to our word? So Jesus is saying, stand strong by hearing and doing. Hearing the word of God, not to create a religious to-do list, Hearing the word of God to quickly learn by the power of the Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit, where my heart is not yet like Jesus' heart, and then seek the Lord by faith that he might transform my heart, and then I'm going to go do what my new heart says to go do. You see that? Now, the way religion does it is the reverse. What religion does is it says, you know what, you're a bad person, and you need to make sure God doesn't smite you, or smote you, or smitten you any of the smitings. And so you need to do a bunch of good things to get big old mean God to be nice to you. And if you do enough good things, he'll make you better. And the gospel turns that all the way upside down. He says, no, how about this? How about we get a new heart that operates the way Jesus' heart operates and then we will be moved and motivated by the things of Christ and the things we're moved and motivated to do are the things Christ is moved and motivated by. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Not hear the rules and follow the rules. Hear the word of God and become like Jesus. And the gospel is the only way we're going to have the power to do that because the more you draw close to God, the more you will realize you aren't like him And the only way we will have the ability not to get discouraged in that is to remember over and over and over again, Jesus paid it all. The cross washed me clean. He's the one doing the work. He receives me wholly as I am because Jesus paid for it. Jesus did all of that for us. He gives us grace so as our hearts are transformed, we can 
uh, give grace to others. Stand strong. How do we do that? By hearing and doing. By hearing the word of God, the Holy Spirit transforms our heart, and then we do things Jesus does. Go back to Matthew chapter 7 if you would. I mean, I don't, don't mean to be rude. I'm not telling you what to do. Well, actually, I am. Go back to Matthew 7. I'll tell you. Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Why would we do that? We stand strong by hearing and doing. Why do we need to have our life built on the rock? And the answer is because the storm's coming. And Matthew, in the book of Matthew, we see two storms approaching in the book of Matthew. And well, in my view, and if you disagree, that's okay. You can be wrong. There's one storm, and it's something I'll call Monday or Tuesday or whatever this week happens to hold. We face storms on a routine basis. We have good days, we have bad days, we have ups, we have downs, and there's storms that are coming. And so one of the, one of the ways he wants us to see this is just the realities of life, the storms of life, that there's good things, there's bad things, and, and we're going to have to be able to figure out a way to endure the storms of life. But also, knowing it's Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 10 and in Matthew 24, Jesus is going to talk a lot about that great storm, which we would call the day of the Lord. So there's another storm coming, a day where we will have to stand before the Lord, and we need to be ready for that day, too. And so there's really two applications to why do we need to stand strong? Because the storms are coming. There's the storms of life and the storms of the day of the Lord, and we need to be ready uh, for these things. Are we ready for the storms that are coming? Wise man build his house on the rock. And here's what I want to do is spend a little bit of time looking at three different passages describing how Jesus is the rock. And what he's saying here is, I want you to hear my words, do my words, have my heart, and in so doing, you're building your life on the rock that is Jesus. He's describing himself, having your house built on me that it might stand during the storm. So having Jesus, the Lord, as our rock. So you ready? Let's look at a couple of different places. First one is Psalm 18. Turn your Bible, Psalm 18. Part of it will probably be up on the screen. This is a Psalm of David after he'd been delivered from his enemies. One of those enemies included King Saul. And it's a praise Psalm for God's deliverance. And it's a really uh, fantastic Psalm. It's a joyful Psalm because he had been delivered. So let's look at this Psalm and some of the details of it to see Jesus the Lord as our rock. I love you, Lord, my strength. This is verse 1. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So look at some of the... Come, which word am I looking for? Some of the words up here that are describing the Lord. First one is, O Lord, you are my strength. Remember, this is King David. Was King David a strong dude? He was a military guy. He knew how to swing a sword, get after it when needed. Of course, he also trusted the Lord. But what he is saying is, where is his strength? It's the Lord is his strength. It's not the might of his arm. David was fleeing from Saul, and he went to the, the, the priest, and he said, I'm in a hurry. I forgot to bring my sword. I need a couple of things. Need some bread? And the priest said, yeah, here you go. You got some bread. And, uh, and David said, well, I forgot my sword. Um, you got anything laying around? 
And the priest says, well, I have Goliath's sword. We keep it behind the altar. And David's response was, there is none like it. How strong is this dude? He's, he's walking around with Goliath's sword. I mean, I would think he, in the sheath, it's dragging on the ground, right? I mean, this guy's a strong dude, and he knows good weaponry. But when it comes right down to deliverance, is it that he's wielding Goliath's sword? Is it that he's got good military men around him? No, where's his strength? The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Does David have any fortresses? Yeah, David's got dozens. The first thing he did when he took over Jerusalem was build a fortress that eventually got called the city of David. He had fortresses all over the place. But he's saying the fortress is not my fortress. God is my fortress. God is my rock. He's He's the one I take refuge in. The Lord is my shield. Did his guys have shield? Do you think David carried a shield around? There's no way he's going to battle without a shield. David's got a shield, but he's saying, listen, this shield affixed to my arm, this shield is not my shield. My shield is the Lord. That's where my confidence is. See, when David was delivered, he wasn't so arrogant to say, well, it was by my might and my power. It was by my great fortresses and my mighty men and my skill and my cunning and my leadership. No, no, no. He says, I was delivered because the Lord is my fortress. Not my fortress. My fortress, that's where I hang out. My fortress is the Lord. My strength is the Lord. My shield is the Lord. I called upon the Lord. He saved me. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. He describes his saving. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, or the grave, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. So he's describing drowning here, the torrents, the the cords of death. This is very similar to it. In fact, Jonah's prayer, if you read in Jonah chapter 2, his prayer is very similar to this. The description of being in the water and crying out to the Lord for help. In fact, look down at verse 16 of Psalm 18. He sent from on high and he drew me out of the waters. So what David is saying here is, the Lord is my rock. When the flood comes, the reason I have strength is not my fortress. It's not my shield. It's not my stronghold. It's not my mighty man. It's not my throne. I alone count on my ability to stand because the Lord is my rock. That's where my confidence comes from. The Lord is my rock. He is my source of strength. He is my security. David had a good habit of doing something many of us, uh, including myself, need to think about more. He had a good habit of praying before he approached difficulty, not after. Prayer wasn't his last resort. It was his first resort. And he'd go into battle seeking the Lord, and he would come out of battle seeking the Lord. And many of us are still learning that, myself included, that I start praying when things get real ugly. And David would pray through the ugly. Okay, let's keep going. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. The Apostle Paul talks about the rock who is Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Who's he talking about? Israel leaving Egypt. Under the cloud, pillar of cloud by night, pillar of fire by day, or... No, that wouldn't work. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. 
They were under the cloud following the Lord through the Red Sea. Do you remember that story passing through the Red Sea and Charlton Heston stood on the shores and parted it? It was fantastic. You were baptized into Moses, meaning having passed through the Red Sea, you were the people of God drawn out by Moses. And they go into the wilderness, verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food. What was that food? It's manna, perfect. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What was that rock? They drank from the rock at least twice. First time, God told Moses, strike the rock and water will come out, and he did, and it did. Second time, God told Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out, and Moses struck the rock, water came out, nonetheless. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I want you to see your life with Christ is preordained, pre-seen, foreshadowed by the people in the wilderness. They had food to eat and water to drink because God provided. You have all you need to sustain you because Jesus is your rock too. Jesus is your hope. He is your ability to be sustained is Christ will provide all that is needed. And all that finally really is needed is eternal life in him. How much manna do you get each day? That day's manna. One of the problems, what, he was, what he's alluding to here, the big issue that we have is the people of Israel had, the, had a problem. They didn't want today's manna. They wanted this month's manna. What they wanted was God to provide enough so they finally didn't need God anymore. What a pesky guy. And what God did is provided everything they could ever need, but only every day. And Jesus here is uh, pictured the same way for us. He is everything we need, but he is going to intentionally craft our lives in such a way that each day we are going to anew realize how much we need him. So Jesus is our source of life. Jesus, as he says in John chapter 4, is that spring of life, that water which gives us strength. So by faith we come to him and say, Lord, you're enough. We take communion monthly, and that's one of the ways we say, Jesus, you're enough. If all I ever had for all of my life was Jesus, I would have enough. And, and, and this is going to sound weird. I don't mean to be depressing, but, but what if we never got anything else? What would happen? Well, we would die. And then we get to sing a song about, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Bring it on. You got nothing. So the Lord will provide all that's needed because all that has been needed has been provided for because our life with him is secure. Finally, Romans 9.33. Now we're, we're done flipping around too much. Here's what the Apostle Paul, quoting Isaiah, says, Romans 9, 33, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Lord is my rock, according to David. He's my strength, my shield, my fortress. According to Paul, the Lord is our rock. He is our source, our life, our hope. But then Romans reminds us, Jesus is that rock of offense. That some will build their lives on him by faith. Many will stumble over him. Why would somebody stumble over Jesus? Jesus has the audacity to say this. If you want relationship with God that lasts forever, I am the only way to have it. And the reason he is so finicky about this is because he's right. There is no other way to be related to God through righteousness other than Jesus. Every other way is a falsehood. And that's offensive to people. 
It's offensive to people, you and me included. We shouldn't think ourselves too religious for me to come to you and say, uh, you, do you believe in the gospel? Yes. Okay, so you agree that you, your sin is so bad that Jesus had to die for you. Of course, we're religious. We'd say, yes, we love that. But don't you realize how bad that means your sin is? Most Christians, we want to believe our sin isn't that bad. But we look at the cross and the gospel confronts us with the reality. Our sin is pretty bad. And nobody wants to be told they're wrong. Nobody wants to be told their life is immoral. But in order to, to, to receive Christ in the power of the gospel, I have to agree, my life is ruined because of my rebellion. And it's offensive, and people stumble over that. People are challenged by that. This happens broadly. Jesus is the rock that offends, but look what he says. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Our hope is in him, and our righteousness is in him. Stand strong. How? By hearing and doing. And stand strong in the storm. Why? Because storms are coming and we must be ready. When your life is on the rock and a storm comes, we come to the realization we will only falter if our rock falters. Is our rock going to falter? He hasn't yet. He's not going to. If our life is built on the rock of Christ, when the storm comes, whatever it may be, We will only falter if he does, and he never does. A couple of quick things. We'll close with this. I know I said it was three hours. I just can't do it. All right. Here, hearing the words of God. This is a simple one, and I I harp on this all the time, and and you're probably tired of it, and uh, I'm not sure that I'm concerned about whether or not you're tired of it. You can only hear... The words of Christ, if you hear the words of Christ, I'm afraid to even say it because I'm afraid you're going to get bored. You've got to read your Bible. I mean, does that sound overly complicated? You can't hear the word of Christ if, you don't op- if we don't open our Bible. Say, well, I come to church. Listen, this is, this is, this is a bit. We need to be in our we, In order to hear the words of God, we've got to open our Bibles up and read it. Now, here's how reading your Bible is going to go. Some days you're going to read it, and you're going to go skipping Oh, this is so amazing, and you're going to spend the whole day thinking about the Word of God. Other days, you're going to read it and go, I'm sorry, what? What does that mean? Then you're going to be emailing me. What does this mean? And I'm going to email back. Pray that the Lord opens your eyes to it, because I don't know either. So we, we have to be in our Bible. Now, I'm real easy, because you don't have to live up to my standards. I'm going to give you Set yourself some goals. Here's a simple goal I'll just give you. And this isn't a religious to-do list, so don't try and impress me. Don't email me that you're doing it, okay? 15 minutes a day, four days out of seven. Can you pull that off? Can you do it? Can we do it? 15 minutes a day, four days out of seven. I'm great. Hey, and you say, well, how, can, how could you possibly, as a pastor, tell people they don't have to read their Bible every day? Well, I'm going to go with most people in the 1400s didn't have a copy of Scripture, And so I'm okay with you only reading four days out of seven. I'm going to give you a pass, okay? But we can't know the Word of God. We can't let the Word of God change our hearts if we don't ever open it up. We have to be in the Word of God. We have to know it. If the storms are coming, we need the Word of God in our heart when the storm hits. My experience in my own life, and I know my experience from talking to many of us, when the storm hits, we don't open our Bibles. It gets real. We think that makes it easier. Oh, I got to go find out what God's going to say about this. It gets hard in the storm. The time to get the Word of God into our hearts and minds is before the storm hits. So that's boring. That's dull. Just, just seek the Lord. Say, Lord, how can I put the Word of God in my heart, and uh, and then seek Him in that.
Secondly, do. Hear the word of God. Do the word of God. I'm just going to give you this simple question. Are you ready? What is the Spirit today reminding you that you need to do? And you're just digging your heels in. I don't know what it is. There's no way I could possibly guess. I mean, I know what a couple of of it is for a couple of you, but I don't want to point you out. I'm kidding. I don't. What is it? The the Holy Spirit's been showing you you need to do this, and you've been saying you've been you've come up, in fact, with Bible verses to explain why that's not that's true. You ever argued with God with the Bible? No, Lord. The Bible says here, Greg should do whatever he wants. We can we can we can make the Bible say whatever. There is something the Holy Spirit's showing you. Say, you know what? You ought to do this. This is the right thing to do based on what the word of God says. And you're digging your heels in. Maybe it's time to just say, you know what? It's time to repent. Not my way, but your way be done. Or maybe it's the flip side. Maybe there's something in your life and you know that you should stop. It's time to say no to that thing, whether it be sin or just something that you know isn't helpful for your Christian life. And you need to finally uh, quit digging in. And it's time to say, you know what? That's a part of my past and not my future. What is it the Holy Spirit's showing you today? You say, you know what? I need to say no to that. It's time to walk away. And if that's the case, you should, you should call a brother or sister in the Lord and say, you know what, the Lord moved in my heart in this way. Is there any way you can be praying for me? Okay? Last thing. Storms are coming. Hear the word. Do the word. Because we want to be ready for the storm. So my last thing is this. We don't hear the word and do the word to avoid the storm. So you turn on the TV you're looking for ESPN because you want to watch whatever they're, what are they broadcasting? Yeah, they're, they're doing fish races in ponds, right? I don't know what they're doing. Turn on ESPN the Ocho and they have, Christian television has bought the time slot. And so you turn it on, you're trying to flip it, but now you realize Christian TV has bought all the time slots and there's a preacher on there telling you, if you do the following 10 things, if you're good, you're nice to your wife, and of course, invariably, if you send $1,000 into my ministry, the Lord will bless you and you'll get the promotion and your debt will go away and your kids will obey you and yada, 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 right? Look, it does, the Bible is not saying, hear the word and do the word to avoid the storm. What does it tell us? Hear the word, do the word, so our life is built on the foundation. The storm is coming. It's a lie from the devil that if you do the Christian life right, nothing bad happens. Jesus said quite clearly, count the cost of being a disciple. Because challenges are coming. We hear the word of God and do it, not because we want our life to go perfect. We do that because we need our foundation built for when the storm comes. That's how we prepare for it.